podcast, the only book club podcast that's never burned a book. Though surely that can't be true. I'm sure most book club podcasts don't burn books, right? I would hope not. <laughs> Maybe some of the more, uh, let's say, ones filled with zealotry. I don't know. Maybe that's... <laughs> there are certain groups who tend to gravitate toward book burning more than other groups. So yeah. I guess there might be some. But yeah, keep keep your books safe, people. You know, no need to go burning them. No need to censorship in that way. Uh, no accidental kind of purgatory library burnings. Nothing like that. We're against mm-hmm. it all. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Protect your books at all costs, of course. Uh, If you have no idea why we're talking about book burning, whether accidental or purposeful, it's because we are here with a book club episode on The Midnight Library, which is a novel by Matt Haig, and involves a quite a moment of book incineration at the end of it anyway so (laughs) spoilers uh if you've never listened to the podcast before welcome we are as i mentioned the lightly literary podcast we have uh, instagram and facebook accounts up under that name under that handle so it's all one word follow us there and keep up with what we're reading we post you know promotions for the episodes and reminders of the books we're covering on the show so check us out there um book club episodes are analytical deep dive episodes so if you have never heard this podcast this is actually the worst place to start listening to to it because we'll be discussing and spoiling the second half of this novel. Um, if you've read the novel, then you found a decent place to actually jump in. Um, but we also have a book recommendation up in the feed at this point for this book. And of all of our other books we've covered, the feed is like an archive. Feel free to dive in and explore. Uh, so if you want to come check out this episode later on after you've read The Midnight Library, feel free to. But yeah, we'll be spoiling the whole book at this point, discussing and analyzing the second half. And that's kind of the ambition and the goal for today. Uh, any content warnings? I didn't mark any. I don't think so, no. It's pretty light in the second half. The kind of suicide self-harm stuff is way more in the front half of the book. So I guess it mentions that again at the mm-hmm. end. Um, but anyway, yeah, not a huge part of it. Any thoughts before we jump in, Amanda, and get to the second half of this one? I'm ready. Yeah, let's not hold back any longer. We'll begin with our first kind of stalk, uh, stopping or talking stalking point, <laughs> a very different stopping point, um, <laughs> talking point, which is going to be through, and I guess I'll read the chapter titles more carefully this time because we've broken up the back half of the book into little discussion chunks. This is from Life and Death in the Quantum Wave Function to God and Other Librarians, so those chapters. Let's pick back up with Nora Seed. She finally gets an explanation from Hugo, so we ended part one extremely bated breath, curious to see how this book would change or not change based on his presence. Um, Apparently, Hugo tells her that everybody gets a kind of personalized purgatory, or at least a lot of people seem to get this, enough for him to pick up on and meet these people. So fittingly enough, it's like dependent on your life. That's why Nora has a library with Mrs. Elm. His is a video store with, was it like a brother or something? Father? His uncle. Uncle, Uncle. I believe. Yeah, Yeah, so it's just dependent on the life you've lived. But the gist of it, of course, is that some people just seem to want to bounce from life to life. So Hugo's been doing this for a long time. Is he the one who gives the 300 number? He's done it like 300 times or... Am I making that? Yeah, some kind of like, no, it's like in the hundreds for sure. Yeah, it's a lot. And so he doesn't stay long, you know, maybe a few days to maybe a few weeks. But yeah, he he doesn't seem to want to settle into a life um, that he's being offered. And so he seems happy with it, though. He's a curious person and conveys to her like that's he's happy with that decision. Um, So... Did they also, did they have a, they had sex, right? (laughs) Did they have a little romance? Like she kisses him and then they, yes. Yeah. 
she feels empowered to kiss him because she's like, you know what? This is just one life. It's fine. And she like lunges at him and kisses him. And then in the, and then she, um, they have sex, but (laughs) while they're having sex, that's when she felt the most disappointment, which is when she faded, (laughs) which is hilarious to me. That's great. (laughs) Yes. That was, that's what it was. It was the very abrupt transition where, they have this intense connection. Obviously, she's quite lonely in the, you know, having to live these other lives. It's She's literally adrift all the time. So, yeah, she finds a connection with this person. But then, yeah, it's the, the transition there is pretty abrupt. She's like, wow, the sex is really bad. And then she fades back into the library. So she's back. She's yeah. back in the library, of course, chatting with Mrs. Elm. And this time she chooses a life uh, in which she stuck with the labyrinths and pursued a career in music and got really big and famous, which we'll explore next. Um, any notes on on this section i guess we could talk about the romance yeah that was the uh that that was just like my my whole thing for this section was just i thought like wow how telling is it about his personality that not only does nora fade like after really disappointing sex but he talks about how it's happened several times to him where he's met other sliders as he calls them sliders um as he's met other sliders in mid conversation they just fade away so it's yeah i think it's pretty interesting that his character she has this really deep connection with him but based on what happened like when people i guess like get to know him on a more intimate scale or something like that they actually just are not at all connected to him in a way yeah. which is why they're able to just like disappear in in the middle of a conversation um so i think that was kind of like a that's a, a a warning of what type of person is uh, able to jump lives like this. It must be somebody yeah. who is disconnected from humanity in some way. Yeah, there's a nice paragraph. This is I thought was a good moment of reflection, though. This is a theme we'll come back to in the second half of this novel, which is that there are moments in this novel that reveal what would have been a better novel, <laughs> which in this paragraph is one of them on 153. She says, Hugo, she concluded, was a strange person. For a man who had been so intimate and deep in his conversation, he was very detached from the moment. Maybe if you lived as many lives as he had, the only person you really had any kind of intimate relationship with was yourself. She felt like she might not have been there at all, and in a few moments, she wasn't. It's a nice little segue out and a kind of a clever little quip be exit from a you know a little depressing sex scene that's not described in any way just literally but the sex turned out to be a disappointment a camu quote came to her so she's having her her reflections but i just think ah, this book is just gonna settle so comfortably into like upper middle class fantasy that it just doesn't have an interest in things that are more depressing or strange or weird or selfish or it, I don't know. It, it's it, the emotional and kind of like life spectrum it's operating in feels very glossy and I don't know. It's a little too warm or something. It's like a it's like when a hug becomes suffocating feeling. But it's and that that moment just reveals like oh he's aware of the kind of implications of what he made, but he doesn't want to explore offshoots of it. He just has such a I don't know. It's it, the the kind of emotional mission of this book is quite clear and limited. I think it could work for a lot of people. I'm, you know, left seeing why it was popular, so to speak. But moments like that are to me just kind of heartbreaking because it's like, oh, he sees that there could have been a much weirder, less comfortable novel here, and just he wants that to be a side character that gets that's meant to be played off of Nora. 
a theme again we'll return to any other thoughts on their <laughs> on their you know little tryst uh no it was uh, <laughs> i was not surprised that the sex scene was not even a scene uh, yeah. just something yeah. that we're told happens because that's that's kind of his mo which is like not to actually describe anything mm-hmm. <laughs> that actually happens but to just tell us <laughs> what has happened so but to keep it moving yeah it's a very keep exactly. it moving type of book that's for sure the pace is the pace is quick um and you know he fell back comfortably into his quoting philosophy that he probably likes <laughs> so that's a, that's definitely a comfortable mode for him as an author like he he loves operating that way when i don't know when the when the book encounters something interesting mm-hmm. he falls back to that pretty often he does like his quotes yeah that's for sure um how about for the next section then um the next section covers fame to howl mm-hmm. um so nora is in brazil because she started a new life and she is performing with the labyrinths but the only other original member is Ravi, who we met um, earlier in the novel, yeah. he's the one that kind of, um, she got into an argument with in the middle of a store yeah, during yeah. a rainstorm. Um, and he seems to have kind of an attitude with her. He's not very friendly with her. She's super famous and has a manager, Joanna, whom Nora seems to like and trust immediately. Um, she finds out that she had a relationship with her celebrity crush, Ryan Bailey. Um, but broke it off. She also finds out that he's actually not into philosophy, and he seems kind of like a lush. He's into living. Um, you know? There seems Isn't... to be some resentment from the band members, as Nora is the focus of the adoration and publicity. And she finds out in the middle of an interview with a music podcast that she was in rehab. Dan is stalking her. That's her ex. That was her husband in one of her lives. Um, her previous manager stole from her embezzled from her and there was some kind of incident in toronto that like with the inspirational speaker like is never really explored yeah um oh and her brother died from an overdose yeah quickly this life quickly unravels for sure becomes a series of extreme catastrophes the podcast is a disaster Hopefully our pods yeah. go a little more smoothly. <laughs> yeah, I no hope big so. personal t- demons to exercise on the pod today, so that's good. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's there is a moment early in this chapter um, where she's singing in front of the crowd and she plays an impromptu song. Since she, I just can't rail on this in the second half of this book, but the because I, I have a moment chosen where I'll talk about it. But the being dropped in cold thing just did, it was unrelenting, of course. Like, that did not get better. It, like, only actually got, I thought, extremely worse to the one point of being, like, absurd and awful. Like, what an awful device to having your book. But we'll get to that point. But anyway, so she performs a song she knows was a Simon and Garfunkel song just because she's in the middle of a concert and has no clue what's happening. So, you know, she does this charming thing. And there is there's a hint of the kind of rewards of things and she's feeling the energy. She meets some fans and they're complimentary to her and yada yada. Um the, the Dan thing I got a light chuckle out of because it's I know in the first episode I was at least because of the premise was like not defending him but was just questioning how she could ever be comfortable being a stranger in a like how how, how does she know like she d- does not live the life how is she expected to fit into it but yeah right. of course they're just going to keep like throughout the book he becomes such a punching bag of like <laughs> a, a, like a modestly abusing um, you know asshole kind of former boyfriend which I laughed yeah. at what did um what did you think? There are some themes I think that become pretty clear in this section if they weren't already. 
Yeah, what are some of the things? Um, well, I was thinking the the Milky Way part where she's, again, performing. Let me actually read some quotes. I know I just alluded to that. Um, yeah. But this is, there's some thematic work here that becomes pretty clear uh, when she's singing. She, it says on 160, human beings, when there's enough of them together, acting in total unison becomes something else. The collective more roar made her think of another kind of animal entirely. It was at first kind of threatening, as if she were Hercules facing the many-headed Hydra who wanted to kill him. But this was a roar of total support. The power gave her a kind of strength, or the power of it, gave her a kind of strength she realized in that moment she was capable of a lot more than she had known so it's you know every one of these un- unveils and reveals to her aspects of her person that she had been discounting in her first you know original life so i thought that was a clear reflection and you know the book is at almost every turn pretty clear and so yeah. i just thought i'd make note of that because it's yeah, I mean it's pretty clear what the book's doing. It's none of these will satisfy her. Every every life has imperfections. Um, we'll we'll get to some of the cliches of it, I guess, towards as we wrap up. But yeah, I thought that moment was a pretty clear marker too, where it was like, okay, there's really she's never going to settle into any life except for her first one because how could you? They are all imperfect. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and every single life is going to reveal to her some something about herself so it's like it's so predictable as far as each chapter you know what's gonna happen which is Mm -hmm. she's gonna be dissatisfied she's gonna have a conversation with mrs elm about her dissatisfaction and then she's gonna go into the next big regret of course so yeah (laughs) yep yep the story down flat yeah you got a reading on uh, Um, on the howl at the end little howl interpretation yeah so um he which was like the big hit right and and it's been mentioned in these chapters like that was like the big the big song that he kept uh bringing up so he actually does include the song lyrics that he wrote um, as part of his experimental style i suppose um what did you what did you think of it did you think that it was like good to include it like what did it add to the story to include yeah this song i kind of liked it i think it's tough though because song lyrics devoid of music are usually terrible like almost even the best writers if i just read bob dylan without much intonation right now you'd be like what <laughs> it's like really <laughs> mediocre musings i guess like what is this so it's all about the temp you know the sound of the voice it's obviously the accompaniments so I, you know it's tough like that's never gonna feel awesome to me and I don't think it, there's any version of it that's going to, like, blow me away. But I actually thought some of it was, you know, reinforced this this imperfect notion, this idea that you have to, you know, you're almost this primal being. You have to kind of resist. You have to live in this, I don't know, almost violent kind of way, raging against life and what it is, trying to take what's yours, I, I suppose, could be a theme of that, um, you know the bad times are here, the bad times have come, but life can't be over when it hasn't begun. So it's, yeah, it's maybe a little too on the nose, but I mean, this is the book we're reading. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know how many other times during this episode we'll have to say that phrase. Um, But yeah, it's it's a pretty clear reflection of the project that she has to keep pursuing life and to kind of keep going, keep exploring. Did you like it? Um, I liked it better than the other... (laughs) Uh, the the prose simply mm-hmm. because um, I think that he actually like really worked to be creative in writing this like this is the most creative 
uh, stylistically, I should clarify, stylistically the most creative uh, piece that he's included in, in this novel because the the writing in general mm-hmm. has been fairly bland. Um, like, every time I see a metaphor or a simile, I'm, I, like, cling to it like a you know cuz it's just <laughs> so so rare um in his writing but this i i thought was a really nice break from the prose for me yeah um yeah. to actually like look at some style and some some creative some actual creative writing yeah no no doubt and i i weirdly cuz i don't know what kind of music they played you know i guess it's like rock with that has a keyboard which is a good amount of rock i suppose yeah but um i think yeah, I, I think it. I could almost hear the music with it or something. It kind of read like an anthem. I could see some of the, the repetition. I mean, that's the thing too. When you read song lyrics and you get to some repetition on a page with no accompaniment, it's like it feels very dull and almost kind of childlike in a way. Um, there's sing-songy, nursery rhymey, but of course, you know, the content of it is more interesting, and I could almost kind of hear it too as like an anthem. It, yeah, I, I didn't think it was that bad. I kind of liked it. Yeah, I think um, Mar- Marcello, who is the one who is um, interviewing her for the podcast, he mm-hmm. compares Howl in particular. He says that it's like early Cure, which is like one of my my favorite bands. Oh, of the cool! Time. He says it's like yeah, it's on page one seventy eight. It's like early Cure fused with Frank Ocean via the Carpenters and Tame Impala. Yeah, I knew a couple of those references. So it's, yeah, it's like psychedelic rock, but kind of maybe a little more upbeat. It's like upbeat psychedelic rock, I guess. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's, yeah. I, I can't help but wonder if, uh, like, so much of the philosophy in this book, if those are just Matt Hag's favorite bands. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's because of the way philosophy was deployed in this book. It's a, it's a little too on in your face, probably a little too obvious. Um, not in terms of the depth of references, maybe, but just in terms of the frequency and the obviousness of them. They're not even illusions at that point. They're just kind of like the the structure of this book is built on them. They're like foundational or whatever. But anyway, I just whenever those things came up, I just couldn't help but think like, how how far away is the author from this? This doesn't feel like a narrative invention. This feels like the again, it's very blog posty to me. Um, that, of course, would be an interesting yeah. twist if, like, Matt Hag didn't like any of that stuff and was actually trying to do something <laughs> with it or, you know, like, twist it a little bit or, like, manipulate us because of our expectations for it. I just cannot fathom that that's what's happening. But or if that's what's happening here, I imagine it's just like, that's stuff he likes. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Very funny. Any other thoughts on this chapter or section, I should say? Um, I did notice something. Um, so on page... Uh, 170 when she comes up to the the hotel that she's staying at which is also where she does the the podcast interview mm-hmm. um, I'm just gonna read very quickly the yeah. coach pulled up at a grand looking hotel outside of town fancy cars with darkened windows palm trees wrapped in fairy lights architecture from another planet and then okay. um, she goes on. Uh, a former palace Jonah told her designed by a top Brazilian architect I forget his name Oscar Niemeyer I don't don't know Hmm. she said after a moment modernist but this is meant to be more opulent than his usual stuff best hotel in Brazil so what what got me was um, the statement architecture from another planet I was like now I like that I like that sentence but the way that he describes the building I did not get the sense that it was quote architecture from another planet it's 
fancy cars, palm trees with fairy lights. And then Yeah, well he falls immediately into categorizing f- it in modernism like he it's not from another planet cuz you just categorize it in a movement that happens. Right. <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a bit antithetical uh, to what you just said. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, I think it's it's um, it, it's trying to be immersive in the it, you know, she's trying to make it seem unfamiliar to her this life is so grandiose, but it this yeah this book has such a lack of immersion in that way it, it it's very tell it's got you know every time we have to start a swear jar it's very blog post it's just like it doesn't really want to sell you on things it just wants to convey them you know it wants to tell it's a very tell 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 kind of book and i don't really think it's or um yeah i don't think it's really showing or kind of invoking much it's just yeah that's a good one to point out though stylistically the contradiction there yeah so, it, i was just like it really tripped me up for like when i read it i was just like what <laughs> yeah yeah but don't stop and stare too long at the at the scenery and decorations around you in this one i don't think <laughs> yeah it's it is a book in that sense too of ideas and not a stylistic mission i, I don't know anything about this author at all except from this book but it just doesn't this just doesn't feel like literature to me even i would say that doesn't mean it's right. not ideas or it doesn't have interesting ideas or, or you know, a few things to ponder but it doesn't even feel like it attempted like a literary endeavor this again just feels mm-hmm. like a much much simpler you know transference of ideas or something anyway yeah, so there's that. Uh, next stopping point from love and pain to someone else's dream. So Nora, obviously not going to be a rock star. She was discontent there, especially with her brother being dead. That's what kicked her back to the library and Mrs. Elm. I, I appreciate it in this section that she finally shows a little bit of rage to Mrs. Elm mm-hmm. and is like, why again, with infinite options, why are we doing it this way? Like, why do you keep showing me things where bad stuff is going on? Uh, the definition of the word infinity, I think this book does not understand. Um, though again, also I think philosophically it doesn't want to because it, it wants life to be lived and so she has to suffer and has to endure to see yada yada. Um, so I think thematically I get it, but it's like, don't say there's infinite options then. Like, you gotta, you gotta say something else. Because <laughs> um, that just is absurd then there's obviously within infinity there's a version of her life where they made it famous and her brother is alive even maybe still in the band happy like that's what infinity means so it's you're just not exploring that idea at all this book is has a weird weird premise in that sense but i was glad to see it i was like all right nora's finally like upset she clearly is like this is not the thing you promised what is happening anyway um another strange moment in this section nora is shown a memory from her childhood but is not living the life or like she doesn't get transported back. It's as if she's recalling it within the library. Uh, it's a memory where she fell into a river or swam into one and needed help, and her brother tried to come save her. In the end, she didn't need it. She swam out on her own, but she remembered then her brother like pushing to go save her. It was you know kind of a positive memory that she had. So an interesting inclusion. It is an odd moment though because it's not that's not book based, right? that she just kind of fades into that memory i don't know what that and i'm not sure what that function is maybe we can unpack it in a second but it's it's interesting maybe it's saying something about her childhood you know core memories um anyway nora begins to realize and so they they play this kind of awkward metaphorical game of chess but she she realizes that picking a more subtle change would probably satisfy her more instead of these massive huge monumental life swings and so she instead requests a quiet comfortable life uh in which she decided to be a veterinarian or just like work with animals i don't know if she's a full vet she might just be 
you know, helping her rescue. And so off we go. Um, what'd you make of this interlude? Anything interesting jump out to you? Uh, I, I found the uh, jumping back into the past where she actually can like feel the cold of the water and everything like that. So it's almost like she's jumped into a previous life. And that way I was a little like taken aback that we were going to have that experience or that she, I guess, would have that experience considering the the goal of the library is, well, we don't know the goal, but the, the what she does in the library is to go into alternate realities. Yeah. But I think that... I reconciled it in my mind as well. Everything is in her mind right now. It's, it's which we she uh, Mrs. Elm clarifies later on too is, is that, the library is her mind. Mrs. Elm is her mind, and so, of course, she's going to be able to access, certain memories, and things like that. Um, so it it, it seems out of place in a lot of ways but it it does i mm-hmm. suppose in the grand scheme of things fit with the idea that yeah this is like uh this is just her exploring her mind which also yeah. explains all the monologues and everything else she's having <laughs> it's interesting too it's the only memory that gets put into the story in this manner so i, I mean you know we it's the second half of the book club we we're obviously going to spoil some things out of order but the fact that having those connections with her family seem to be probably the most important thing, like salvaging the relationship with her brother. He, he's, you know, comes through at the end for her and what their connection is one of the final things in the book. So I do think it's meant to show that sort of the simplest thing is the truest or, or whatever, which is that the family connection is what should be precious and, or what is precious, what should be saved. So yeah, it was just, it was a strange inclusion because it breaks the, not breaks. I mean, it's not like the it's not like the fictional rules of this world are so rigorous. But it's just yeah, it was a strange interlude because she kind of fades into it without the without the book. So, what did you make of the chess uh, the chess speech and metaphor? I guess I should probably read from this one because this is another moment of, I you know as much of a thesis in a work of fiction as you're gonna get. Um, they're playing a, they're playing a chess game and Mrs. Elm says. At the beginning of a game, there are no variations. There's only one way to set up a board. There are 9 million variations after the first six moves, and after eight moves, there are 288 billion different positions. And those possibilities keep growing. There are more possible ways to play a game of chess than the amount of atoms in the in the observable universe. So it gets very messy. And there's no right way to play. There are many ways. In chess as in life, possibility is the basis of everything. Every hope, every dream, every regret, every moment of living. And then Nora eventually wins that game. It's um, uh, putting a dollar in the drawer. It's blog post style. Some he read this somewhere. He must have seen this statistic, and his and then his brain goes, "Low life's kind of like that." And then instead of putting that on, you know, a like Tumblr post, it, this book exists instead. <laughs> but it's it's right there. <laughs> I mean, it's instead of five paragraphs saying, you know, you you never really know what life's gonna throw your way. You never know who you'll meet and where you'll go. And it's well, how fascinating all these different butterfly effect uh, manifestations. So instead of the five paragraphs, we have the three hundred page or so whatever novel version. It's it. It really is right there. It's not a very subtle metaphor. Yeah, um, and it's the and it continues too because uh, Nora still hasn't gained um, enough appreciation, enough self-esteem, enough 
yeah. uh, trust in herself. So she, even though she won the game, she makes the comment that she believes that Mrs. Elm allowed her to yeah. win the game. That right. she purposefully let her win it. So that that's a continuation of that idea as well. Yeah, she hasn't seen, uh, she hasn't appreciated the small ripples yet, but she will. She will. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll get there. You know, um, this, this I did actually though very quickly. Um, um, I I enjoyed one. There was a nice piece of writing done by Haig, which was mm-hmm. on page one ninety. Um, she looked at the bank on the other side, now with added bookshelves, but still with a large silhouette of a sycamore tree leaning over the water like a worried parent. The wind shushing through its leaves. I was like, oh, that's a nice little image. I wish that that was how he wrote more often. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is a little serene, yeah, a little serene moment in that, in the chapter for sure. Fitting enough too that it happens outside of the, outside of the, you know, drop in cold memory style other lives because so much of the narrative is eaten by that. I mean, how many pages? Is there a moment on the page where she spends it trying to figure out what's going on? Like, it's got to be 100 pages of this 285-page book. Now, I'm not saying that mm-hmm. the whole page is her figuring stuff out, but on, I bet, 100 of these pages, there is a line or a couple lines or a paragraph of her being like, well, I can't, I don't really know, or I can't, I don't know what's going on, or I check my phone, or I have to, you know, it's like... Oh my god, what an exhausting premise that was concocted here to make this work. It really makes no sense to me why you would do it that way. Uh, it's very strange. Um, let's move to the, the next section, though. Yes. Um, so the next section is A Gentle Life to Lost in the Library. Uh, Nora goes through several lives in these chapters. Yeah. We begin with the life in which she works with animals, mostly dogs at this point, and is in a relationship with Dylan who also works with her and is a, quote, pure person. Uh, Nora decides, however, to leave that life because she believes that Dylan deserves to be with the Nora that actually loves him. Um, She then jumps from life to life, even reuniting with Hugo at one point, Uh, but she comes to realize that she's losing herself in the process, which is reflected in the darkness in the library um, when she stops in there. Mrs. Elm convinces her to continue trying lives by explaining that there are infinite lives and Nora is looking in the wrong places. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I thought was pretty interesting is like with the Dylan scenario. Yeah. She she leaves for the good of somebody else. Yeah. I was going to pick up on that too. What, what's your read on yeah. this? Um, I think that we had talked about in the previous episode about, like, whether we would see any growth in Nora as a person. Um, and so we do actually see her focusing, um, on, like, the bigger picture of things, which is something also that you and I had discussed in the previous, um, episode, which is, like, what happens to the Nora's that she, like, is taking over and then leaving? Like, how do they put their lives back together (laughs) after she destroys some of them (laughs) like yeah how do they you know um so here she's actually like looking at the ramifications not just for her but on the people around her if she were to stay um so i i thought that that was a nice little piece of growth for her as a character it was it also though 
Yeah, and maybe it is meant to show kind of a extreme intrinsic selfishness in her. There, There is a cliche about suicide that it's like the ultimate selfish move, you know? It's like the... I mean, obviously, in, in some ways, it's from... In a simplest sense, it's like the opposite, right? You want to be rid of yourself. You don't want to be a... You don't want to... But inhabit yourself anymore. But there is this idea of, like, because of the way it affects others and because of the finality of it, you don't give anyone else say in it. You don't... You know, it's like the ultimate selfish thing to do as well. I, I wonder if the story was building that up or could have built that up more. I, I just... I howled at this revelation because... It's literally what's been going on. And she's had moments of thinking, like when she's left the other ones about like, I'll leave it up to you or I'll good luck. I think when she leaves Dan, he he reveals himself as like an abusive kind of emotionally abusive alcoholic. She's like, well, good luck to that, Nora, you know, like hopefully therapy's going okay or or whatever. Um, I don't, it just, because of the premise of this and because of the way over and over again, she has to fumble her way through these things. Just having that line about, you know, that Dylan deserved the other nor the one who had managed to fall in love with him. This was a new feeling as if she was taking someone else's place. Like all the other Nora's, maybe they like their lives too. Who could say? Certainly not an interloper that knows nothing about what's going Like, I don't understand right. what they're supposed to learn from this, even the premise. Like, I don't get, I don't get this. How do we know that this rock star Nora is unhappy? How do we know that the Olympic speech giver is unhappy? How do we even know the Dan version that that Nora is unhappy? Even though, again, I think that's played the clearest to be discontent and like really kind of off or whatever. It's mm-hmm. just that that is, it underlines all it's, it's underneath all of these moments. Um, I guess this is her moment to realize that, but I was just like howling at this. I was like, Oh my God, now this is a thing that this book is going to acknowledge. <laughs> it's another strange moment though of like, because that reflection is in there. I just think of like, what if a book explored that of the pain she was causing and, and, you know, taking things from others and like, who even is the real Nora and who deserves to, I, there's like questions this book has. It just is so little interest in them, but it nods its head at them occasionally, which I guess is frustrating when it, when a work does that. It's frustrating when you're like, Oh, you kind of acknowledge, you kind of see some other premises that would be, I don't know, to me more intriguing. It's all, it's all my lens, I guess. But yeah, I found that moment really frustrating. Cause I was like, I don't, I'm not even sure what this premise is supposed to show. Um, other than the cliches we'll get to at the end. Did you, did you find it? Um, you called it growth. Did you, does it read pretty clearly that way to you? Like she'd gone through some differences and changes. I think that's what it's, I mean, the entire novel is meant to be like Nora's, Epiphanies and and her her yeah. growth into um, being a person who who wants to live and who realizes that you know like regret is toxic and and everything kind of like happens for a reason or whatever. Yeah. But but what was I thought was um, interesting was that she has this realization, but then she continues to life hop anyway. And yeah, it's a very brisk hopping. And, it's and like it, a it 50 on a page. Right. Yeah. And and then even when she's like in, in the next, you know, the, the longest life that we're exposed to, which is with Ash. Right. She's she doesn't she doesn't relate that situation with the Dylan situation. It's like, yeah, it's like a lesson that she kind of learned or that it's a realization that she learned and then and then immediately disregards for herself like for her own life hopping 
Yeah, it motives. is the only like, moment that she has a regret for a per- for another Nora, who now is, what, cast off into a void, actually consciously dead, was never alive, who knows, again, implications of the book doesn't want to explore. Fair enough, I mean, it's very light sci-fi, but you can't, you can't then rest your character development on that, too, when there have been these other scenarios that are, I, I don't know, it's... Um, I think it's it's as if, you know, he had a vision of what each kind of chapter in her life, in her multiversal life, would like mean or represent. But yeah, a reflection like that feels casual and also disrupts bigger ideas than maybe maybe the reflection when he wrote it, like he realized. It it dis it felt like it really disrupted other things in the book to me by implying things and it was just like you can't have the tidy conclusion you end up getting with something like that. Because her selfishness then is way more profound than you know, we've been led to believe or something. Yeah, strange. Let's get to the life with Ash. This is um, the next stopping point from a pearl in the shell to the flowers have water. Um, As the page count on the novel begins to near its end, so too do we finally have to get to a life that Nora loves, because of course this book was going to do at least one of them, you know, so far it's been the most obvious lesson of there's no true, you know, ecstasy, happiness, every life has problems. Uh, But this is, this might be it. Uh, And it begins with her waking up next to the charming Dr. Ash, remember from the beginning of the book, so of course that that has to come back around you know it's always the handsome and unassuming up, upper tier professionals that you you know have meet cutes with of course um, and then she meets her daughter quickly after that of course so they have a family together she then which i'll analyze later uh plays a truly unhinged game with her child to tease out the basic facts of her own existence um <laughs> you have to understand how much that scene broke me as somebody who has railed against this premise the whole time to see it take up five pages of a book and be kind of pretending to be a cute characterization moment for a child but given no voice to the child it just broke me i was like this is one of the worst pieces of writing i think i've ever seen because it not because of the the words maybe per se but because you have had to concoct this insane really weak moment of characterization just to make your own extremely broken premise function like i was like oh my god i can't believe this is it really broke me i was like this is insane that i'm reading this right now i can't believe it i can't believe the thing i was complaining so much about got like the i we received the worst version or the worst outcome we could have had which is you know a supposed to be cute moment with a child instead just turns into crappy Sherlock Holmes boxcar children. I just could I just could not believe it. It was on the page. <laughs> um Anyway, so that happens, and it's basically revealed that she lives a comfortable upper-class life, so she's fallen into the bougie dream. Um, She's a philosophy professor writing a book about Thoreau, so she's a witty, you know, she's an intellectual, a comfortable intellectual. Her witty, attractive husband, of course, who's a marathon runner, is an exemplary father and a surgeon, Uh, and don't worry, he doesn't bring problems home, so he's pretty much, you know, in perfect mental and physical shape, and perhaps most importantly, her brother is alive and happy, and they have a decent connection, so yep, she's checking all the boxes of a comfortable life um two events end up derailing this though and send her out of it so she doesn't stick around in this one either she goes to meet mrs elm and realizes that she is dead and then also her neighbor who she used to care for mr Bonerji, is at this retirement home and is kind of unsettled and depressed and so she you know in this life doesn't have connections with him doesn't look after him and help and so there's that and then on the way home from that meeting she encounters her former former piano student leo who in this life because he did not have the creative outlet of music, has turned into a like a minor, what do they call it, like petty criminal, I guess. He's robbing places. He's got a knife on him. He's getting arrested by the police. So 
absent that creative outlet, um, his his life has really been derailed. And the guilt of those two things kind of pulls her back into the library for one one last time. So that was enough to kind of knock her out of this ecstasy-filled life in this upper-class comforts. Um, what, what did you think of the child? Because I'll, I'll analyze it in my own way, I suppose, if I haven't enough. What did you think of the child interrogation scene? Yeah, I was just like... <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense, I suppose, like from how easily it, how easy it is to kind of like distract and entertain a child. That was that was pretty accurate. Um, but I I found it I, I it made me kind of cringe as far as like Nora kind of like. It didn't put, for me, it didn't put Nora into a favorable position because she's using that child for her own, like, you know, personal gain instead of actually the goal being to comfort the child who is looking for her mommy and is looking to, yeah, um, to, to get some comfort. And Nora manipulates that situation so that she can benefit from it. So, like, I, I feel like the author meant it to be, like, oh, look at how good she is with kids and stuff like that, but I was just, like, cringing because I was like, and it does not make her good with kids just because, like, you know, it's easy to distract kids, but, like, she... Yeah, I mean, it's funny yeah. she calls it a game, and it's just, like, asking someone a question is not a game, but with young enough yeah. kids, you can call anything a game. I mean, you know, it's they, they true, like yeah. playing it's games. It's interrogation. They like, yeah, they like being entertained. Like, yeah, it, it turned what could be... I oh, mean, I just... <laughs> and I know I've soured on the premise of that that whole narrative premise so quickly that, you know, I'm so biased in this moment, right? My reaction to this was heavily biased, obviously, definitionally. But also, it's just like... I was trying to read the scene as it was happening is like, maybe there's some subtlety with, like you said, like, you know, the charming kind of innocence of kids or that, you know, the nurturing nature of her, or maybe just like some other thing happening. And it just was, it just was tainted by the whole premise of it to me. Like it just didn't, I I couldn't get anything else out of it. Also, I don't really think that the, the work with the kid, it's just not very explicit. It's at some point, it's they're trading dialogue back and forth and yes there's some kid affect in in the speech right there's a little bit of little bit of twang to the way the kid speaks that is you know codes them as kind of a cute innocent whatever but in the end it's just like it's so fast paced and i you can feel the narrative buckling just trying to get all this stuff out cuz it won't be able to work without you knowing stuff and it's just like man what a failure like what a failure of an idea to have to do this it's so bad. It's just, like if you're if the the structure you've devised requires this and it just feels like a poisonous effect. Again, I know it's a strong for sure reaction that I had to that, but it um I just got exhausted reading every time she did this, every time she jumped. It just exhausted me having to do that every time. Yeah. 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 Good. It's <laughs> a lot (laughs) yeah yeah so that that for sure was my narrative moment like i can't think of first i couldn't believe that something so that it became such an intense version of itself because i've you know for how much i complained about it i was like whoa it's really gonna do this um i just couldn't analyze anything else from the chapter this section um did you did you have anything jump out about her you know comfortable life um i had noticed actually in each of her lives um including this one that um, when she jumps into a new Nora, 
she like immediately or almost always immediately um, kind of like checks herself out physically. So there's Mm -hmm. always mention of either clothes or hairstyle or makeup. Um, And oftentimes it's talked about a lot. Yeah. Her stomach gets talked about a lot. And so I, I just found that interesting that her level of attractiveness is something that she immediately kind of like pays attention to in her new in each new life and is that just because like like what what is that meant to be yeah. a personality thing or is it because she's a woman so I, I'm not sure how to take that. I'm, I'm left feeling it's noticeable enough for that when you said it just now I yeah of course it all came back to me um that she did that I don't know it, it I, I don't think she's played up as selfish or vain enough to make it like a core aspect of this text or something but it is there though I, yeah I think you could kind of read into it how you want in a sense because it's kind of left open I there is a there is maybe a bit of an honesty about it and perhaps there was a line of reflection like this that we just didn't pull or, or that I can't remember but it is there's a kind of an honesty to it where it's like well of course one of the first things you check would just be like what's my body because you know it's the thing it's the most intimate thing <laughs> it's like it's yeah it's your body so it's like you'd you know do a quick scan so there's kind of an honesty to that kind of a visceral truth I suppose to it um but yeah, you're right. It's not. I don't know. Did you find it played up in such a way? She. I know she, she doesn't. She have a vasectomy scar in this one, isn't that this one? Uh, a C-section. Or scar. sorry. Oh yeah, vasectomy is a male procedure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so definitely not the definitely not the right scar. Um, that's how little medical terms I know. But anyway, that felt I suppose coded. Yeah, maybe towards like her the the kind of where she's at as a woman, and that might. I don't know. Do you think like the book reflects on those things though? And uh, it's there a lot. You're right. Do you have a reading on it? Yeah, I wasn't sure if it's meant to to showcase how different she is in each life, uh, but like she makes the point that like each time that that's happened, where she's she's mentioned. Uh, the physical aspects of herself in each life, she's like, I would never wear these pajamas, or I would never cut my hair like this, or I would never, right? So it's maybe meant to highlight how different she is as a person, which then like goes back to the to the final epiphany that she has, which is like, these are not my lives. I need to fix my root life because yeah. that's the real me or whatever. Um, I don't know. I could also be just making that up so <laughs> no i think that's a decent reading also in this notably if we really wanted to expand on this this kind of notion of yeah her self-perception through her body changes because you're right though too in in the section of this book where they he rapid fires the lives the like one sentence that chapter a bunch of those mention her body too though because it's like in one she did pilates and one she's like there is this healthy i want to be fit kind of aspect to it like take care you know care for your body all that stuff be mindful of it um the place where that would come into play, though, again, would be maybe in the sex scenes on 241, though. It's another, you know, it's just not a thing he wants to interrogate with with his story because it says there were awkward moments, of course. Nora never knew the way to say anything or where things were in the house. And Ash sometimes wondered out loud if she should see a doctor. And at first she had avoided sex with him. But one night it happened. And afterwards, Nora felt guilty about the lie she was living. They lay in the dark for a while in postcoital silence. But she knew she had to broach the subject. So, you know, talks about other lives. I mean, that's a, it's a one sentence 
fact. It's not if there's this idea of feeling foreign in this skin or discomfort or again, if there's if there's a topic in this book that could be explored as uncomfortable, the book will almost not explore it or it's pretty on the rails i guess like it has a vision of the things that are uncomfortable um these ideas of like missing family connections or having badder bad badder not a word bad relationships um <laughs> worse relationships but like yeah there are certain intimacies there are certain things that this book does not want to broach so mm-hmm. yeah nothing about her body there yeah that's yeah any other thoughts on this section before we wrap this one up? Um, it's just I, I found yet again um, another theme that I felt was pretty cliched, which is like, mm-hmm. oh, the epiphany is like love. Love is what I needed in my root life. Love is what will give me the motivation to want to live. And it's like, okay, like. Yeah. And in the previous um, section with um, the life with Eduardo, the the vineyard life mm-hmm. yeah yeah um she the the lesson there was th- that she should not constantly keep looking for uh better possibilities right because that's why she fades is the the grass is greener on the other side like that was another cliche that the epiphany that she has from there and then she continues to life hop anyway but like yeah it's <laughs> the themes are just so i'm like okay and it's like he hits every cliche for for life affirmation in this book. <laughs> yeah, it's um it's it's very life coach talk, you know. Like let's let's uplift. And yeah, is that the worst mission project for a book? And obviously no. Is it the worst mission or project for a work of fiction? I would almost debatably say yes. <laughs> um I, I don't think it's <laughs> yeah. wrong if people turn to fiction to feel affirmed or like even just good. Uh, let's just use the simplest term. But I don't know. I, I like, I mean, we've covered this so much on the, through the books we've done, but I think we both enjoy things that are naughtier and a lot more compromised and complex than this so uh let's do the final section though how does this book end all right so this is from nowhere to land and all the way to the to the end which is how it ends pretty fitting chapter Mm -hmm. title um (laughs) when nora returns to the library um it's falling apart and it's set on fire mrs elm sends nora to find the only book not on fire Um, And when Nora gets to it, she writes, because it's an empty book, she writes, I am alive, and is immediately transported to her root life. She stumbles to her elderly neighbor's home and receives help. Um, She's hospitalized um, and sent home eventually, and Nora and her brother reconcile. She Mm -hmm. becomes a full-time piano tutor, and she visits the real Mrs. Elm, who is alive in her root life, to play chess with her. Yeah, a grateful Mrs. Elm at the end who, you know, just wants to pass the time. Fair enough. Yeah. Nice quiet And who has her own regrets about life. And then it's Nora who's passing on her wisdom to Mrs. Elm. Yeah, yeah, of course. What did um, you make of the final section? What final things should we analyze? So, yeah, the, the ending for me was just, like, even that very end piece, I was just like, 
Uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it was not going to be a different book. You know, the, we really did stop at the perfect point when I thought maybe the book would explore something different, you know, with the Hugo, like right before the Hugo stuff is revealed. But no, it resolves that in 10 pages. And just like many other things, it's going to resolve itself um, in a pretty tidy manner. And I mean, although her life is open ended, like she's like, who knows what the day will come and uh, what will bring. And, and I just want to embrace life and enjoy life for what it is and remain connected to everybody and just be content. Right. So all of those cliched lessons that she learned, it's just like yeah. tidily summed up there at the end, even in that in the essay that she wrote. She deleted all her suicidal Facebook messages right, and then wrote right. a little essay. Like, I was just like, and it, to his credit, Haig did write um, that it was a sentimental piece. And I was like, yep. And <laughs> <laughs> you think you could have just posted that on Tumblr and this whole thing could have been avoided. But oh well. Exactly. <laughs> you know, could have, could have updated your blog, you know, months ago or years ago and this could have all been avoided. But alas. I did find yes, of course. I mean, at this point, it was obvious that it was going to end in in an overly sentimental manner. Um, the I thought maybe the line that got me the most in that regard was that the like I I don't know. Again, I don't know why I'm challenging this book to do things it's clearly doesn't want to do. But her professional prospects at this point are not good. But and so I love the line that like she you know puts out info about piano tutoring and of course is immediately overwhelmed with you know options and operate so it's just like she barely had to try as it turns out to to like start to turn her which you know i mean maybe there's truth in that sometimes you just got to try but i just thought that sentence was so funny it was like oh okay this is just gonna immediately turn around in, in a sense um you know, her bi- the big question of, like, hey, can she even stay in a stable situation is of, like, yeah, of course, there's tons of kids who need piano tutoring. She's good. Like, it, it's fine. <laughs> um, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, the other section I want to talk about, because this is, what I think, the one final stylistic moment, a uh, real moment of flair I had to bring up or I have to bring up before we close the discussion because it was so video gamey. Uh, when the library is burning down, the clock starts and she is told she has one minute to do, to fix things, right? Do you remember this? Yes, I do, yeah. And so the, the, the timer is interspersed throughout the narrative at this point. She's chatting with Mrs. Elm. She's panicking. She's trying to save her life. She's trying to find the empty book and, and write I Am Alive, all that stuff. The inclusion of the timestamps wild choice to me wild video games fuck this up all the time when they tell you you're on a time crunch and then they just let you do anything you want and the time crunch is irrelevant to the game (laughs) it's like Mm -hmm. you have one day to save humanity and it's like oh no i'm gonna do like a hundred things and then i'll get to it when i can um it just you know it's, it's a very stakes dampening thing this i thought was such a weird decision because to, to do it throughout is the move. Like, I, when the clock starts, there's these three paragraphs, you know, zero, 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 one, two. Like, that, okay, I get the urgency. I'm like, I get it. But to do it later, where it's like 15 seconds, 23 seconds, you know, it comes back and back. I, at some point, I literally sat there out loud and read one of the paragraphs spoken. And I'm like, all right, that took me about 15 seconds, but supposedly five seconds happened. And there's three other interspersed dialogue. Like, why do this to yourself? Why? <laughs> I don't get the, like, why? make it i get it's building an urgency but you can't have both the immediacy and the urgency and then have no attempt to actually make the rest of the narrative work with it 
it's a strange disconnect i thought and it really failed again because i was like well if you're gonna put the literal seconds in i don't why are you having the characters have such long discussions still like it doesn't there's no the, the action has to reflect that like structural choice and it just didn't i thought that was such a weird move yeah, I, I agree. Like that, I, I realized as I was reading that it was meant to create suspense as I was reading, but mm-hmm. I was just like, but it just, it didn't for me. It was, it was just like something that I just kind of skimmed over because I was like, it's not even a real thing at this point. Like, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah I agree. I, it, it was such a disconnect for me. It completely failed as, as in its purpose. In a, in a, um, in a way, Shoot, I just had to. I just had a decent way to phrase this, and it just slipped from my brain. But it, it does show that. Oh, that's what I was going to kind of say. When you put time restraints on something like that, that means by definition you have to make hard choices because finite time means you can't do everything you want to do. But he still does everything he wants narratively. Like he still has a tidy conclusion. He still has them say the right things to each other in the right way. That's going to be the most holistic, sentimental, like life as we've already said was like life affirming final chat. Like they still have that. She still is. You know, you got to go live life. You can't be passive. Take a chance. What are the see the opportunities? All the kind of cliche affirmations um and that's the thing it's like you can't it's just so weird to see a book pretend to have the tension of it's very limited it's constrained you're not gonna be able to say everything you want you don't get the thing you want but then it just takes it anyway it's just such a i feel like that really was kind of an emblematic moment in a strange way it's like it's a book that has a premise implying so much kind of challenge difficulty i don't know interest and it doesn't really want to do any of that it just wants to tell a tidy uplifting life-affirming blog post in in book form um that's exactly right (laughs) so it's it's strange it was a really i just such a weird final move and i just it was emblematic to me for sure of kind of the whole book's mistakes uh so i just thought i'd bring it up i wasn't sure if it felt tense to you again it felt i've seen so many video games mess that up at this point that it's just like if you're gonna put a timer in a video game that means you have to take things away from me you have to make me feel regret in the game you can't let me do everything i want and have a timer that doesn't make any sense (laughs) like that why are you even using the timer then don't even do that um very strange very weird move anyway any final thoughts on the narrative or the themes nope i'm good okay well with that we've concluded the midnight library at least the summary analysis let's do our ending segments then we always end our book club part twos with a couple of segments that we love one is the outside criticism so we're gonna call in for some critical assistance here from other sources we always like to end with thoughts from other critics and and people who have read the work amanda why don't we start with yours it's from npr um talk us through what you're what you're bringing here about the midnight library Yeah, it's uh, from NPR, and it's called It's Not Quite Dark Enough in the Midnight Library, and it was written by Jason Sheehan. Mm -hmm. Um, So here's a quote. Here's the problem. Haig presents all of this as a straight line, this being the the story and the themes. Mm -hmm. The Midnight Library is unusual in that it follows a plot with no twists, no turns that, that don't feel like a gentle glide. Inside the library itself, Mrs. Elm's job is to present everything to Nora very clearly and to lay out the stakes very directly. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was like, spot on. Yeah, it's a very direct, not at all confusing plot. <laughs> no, definitely. Uh, definitely. <clears throat> Bit frictionless yeah, for sure. Very the whole predictable. Thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
and and very linear for something that has the possibility to to not be. Yes. Um, well, to, to give the book its world building credit, it is established. You know, she can only wake up at midnight of her same age. Like that is a. I'll give it. I, we can't fault it for something it sets up. So I, at least I'll say that. I think that premise is not good or like interesting. Maybe I think for what he's trying to do, it worked. You know, it so to speak gets him to his themes. But it, at least that's in there. I, I can say that. Um, so the next piece, um, uh, the next quote that I have here is, <clears throat> there's a deliberateness to it all, a simplicity to the narrative that has to be taken as a choice on Haig's part, not an accident. He takes what could have been, what has been in so many other books, a dark or sad or curvy or weird spin through the logical and philosophical possibilities of regret crossed with multiverse theory and straightens it out. There is tragedy, but it feels muted by the existence of infinite chances. Um, so I, I agreed with the idea of like the narrative is very simple, and I think that it was definitely a, a choice. Yeah. Um, uh, but I just don't like it. It's, a, it's my. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. what I would say. The final um, sentence of that criticism is odd, though, to me. There is tragedy, but it feels muted by the existence of infinite chances. That's something that, again, I thought the book did okay with because she, when she comes back... Now, granted, again, you could just take issue with the whole premise. Maybe that's what that sentence is kind of getting at. But, like, Mrs. doesn't Mrs. Elm say something like, well, you can't go... You can't be a rock star again just because you already kind of did that one. Like, again, it, it doesn't... There aren't actually infinite chances. That's actually my fault with the book. I don't think it feels muted by the existence of the infinite chances. It feels muted because it rejects infinity. Like it actually does. It does. <laughs> it, I don't. I just maybe I'm not thinking through that right. But that doesn't. No, I. Yeah, I think that um, Mrs. Elm says that there there are infinite chances, but because Mrs. Elm is the one who is giving the books to. Nora, it's like she's the one. Even though there's an infinite amount of choices, actually there's not because Mrs. Elm is the one who is the keeper right. of the books and is not allowing her all those infinite choices. You know what? Frankly, might be the worst structural thing then hampering this book is the book of regrets premise because it, it basically that's what makes it so tidy. It's like oh, she's just gonna go scrub away the stuff that made her life bad to make her life good again. Like it's that that maybe is the crux of like what makes this all too orderly in such a clean boring idea (laughs) maybe that's it then for me maybe it's not the infinite books thing but it's like no we're gonna railroad you like just fix the stuff that was wrong in the first 15 pages like it's all there just fix it now and that's it (laughs) that's all this book is gonna do so yeah it's strange in that way yeah yeah Yeah. it was definitely outlined at the very beginning when we got the list of regrets in the beginning of the book (laughs) that what life she would be going through (laughs) yeah Yeah, totally (laughs) Um, and then the, the final quote that I chose, uh, what sucks a measure of the color and life from the Midnight Library is that Nora, as a character, doesn't really want anything. Or maybe she does, but the arc of the plot hinges on her trying to figure out what exactly it is. And a character who doesn't actively want something, even when it is something so basic as to keep on living, is a hard character to identify with. 
Ultimately, Haig gives Nora and those of us following along with her a straightforward path from suicide to closure, from regret to acceptance. He gives her a tree, and though there are many branches, it is still just a tree. The story then forms solely around the lives she passes briefly through, the choices and their consequences. The only question left hanging over all of it is which one she'll finally choose. And in a multiverse of infinite choices and infinite possibility, I'm just not sure that the answer matters enough. So ultimately this quote is just saying like he could not care less about Nora as a character. (laughs) And yeah. And, and I, I have to agree like Nora as a character, I I found her pretty, I I could not fully sympathize with her. I I, I feel like all the characters actually were pretty underdeveloped in a lot of ways. Like Mm -hmm. Mrs. Elm could have been like, way more interesting she's like a font of wisdom but that's that's it she's just that archetype right and then there there's these characters are just so flat in so many ways and even Nora who's who's our main character like she's meant to show growth um as she goes through these lives but she just keeps going back to it her development is gobbled up by having to unlock clues in every life it's crazy (laughs) it's like i feel like i'm a conspiracy theorist pointing at the board being like how does no one else see this (laughs) you know but i'm just gonna be that ranting and raving lunatic this whole time but it's like yeah she doesn't get interesting moments of characterization because she's just stuck trying to do detective work in like 30 percent of the pages of this book it's so weird (laughs) Uh, yeah and it does mean that her characterization suffers for sure yeah strange any final thoughts on that review? It's a good one. Uh, no, I was like, I was kind of expecting to find more like overly positive reviews, but I was, I was it, pleasantly yeah. surprised it by this. It seems like there's a pretty <laughs> clear split between the public and the critics who read this book. I will say one line in that review. Let me quibble with and be um, let me be a bit of an ass about it. His line is, "He gives her a tree, and though there are many branches, it is still just a tree." He doesn't. He gives her a tree branch. And it's a tree branch. (laughs) He does not give her the complexity. Let's not even allow that metaphor. He gives her a tree branch. The story is a branch. A branch is worth of complication. It's not a tree. (laughs) Uh, So just thought I'd get that out there. Um, My critical assistance is from the Washington Post, which did an actual book series or like a series of posts on this one. I just chose from the last one. It is by, oh shoot, I didn't print her name. Give me one second to load it. Angela Hopped. Um, H-E-U-P-T. Uh, and so they did, yeah, because I think this book, you know, it was a big hit. It was very popular, so they did a series of posts about it. This is, again, just from the last one of those, and it's um, it's just about the story, I guess. A couple quotes. Matt Hagg's magical novel, The Midnight Library, is a tonic to anyone who tumbles down this rabbit hole of what-if thinking. It's about Nora, a young woman who decides she isn't cut out for life, she just lost her job, she just lost her job and cat has fallen out with her brother and best friend and generally assumes she's a giant disappointment so she decides to die only small thing i want to pull from that is that it's this tonic for what what if thinkers i think like actually maybe kinda i don't i mean that's a pretty specific prescription though you know i know people are obviously having regret is just a basic human thing but yeah maybe if you maybe if you're living a person who's currently living with a lot of regrets or something this this could be a balm for that i mean it's obviously such a straight line clear project that i you know certainly not going to make you feel worse 
So yeah. I'm not sure if you agree, but that that seems like maybe the audience. I yeah, I agree. Uh, the next quote, one that drove me totally insane and my head exploded when I read it. Um, <laughs> this is uh, from later in the review. Not all of the parallel or perpendicular lives Nora tries on are so meaningful. In one, she argues with people on Twitter all day. In others, she's a travel vlogger, a chess champion, a vegan powerlifter. She's a cat sitter. She's on her third husband and already bored. She drops into new lives again and again, awaiting the one that wants to, wants, um, wants, wait, that makes her want to stay. There we go. Oh my God, what an insane quote to put in the book, in the review, because all of <laughs> those things are from the two page multiverse dump. list, the yeah. list style, the list. <laughs> to, to pull those, do people read books this way? Where it's like in my review, let me pull out a complimentary, interesting sounding paragraph that doesn't even reflect the mission of the book. Like that's not even mm-hmm. what the book is. That paragraph is not what reading this book is like. Yeah, those aren't it, those are interesting, and they're not explored. That it's maddening to read <laughs> yep. this. It's like, yeah, wouldn't it be weird if she had a really boring third husband, and we had an actual page of a couple pages of like emotional complication and conf- like regret and confusion about that, and like, I don't. It's just, uh, I I was like, oh man, what a strange thing to include in a review because reading the book does not feel the way that diverse paragraph it makes it seem, right. It's her being confused would, over and over again and then realizing one thing is bad and then leaving. Like, it's... That's what it is. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just her being confused for most of the book. Um, yeah. That drove me nuts, because mostly because I, too, found that chapter enthralling because it was like, oh, he could have written this book and didn't. This is the book he right. didn't write. And it's like, but he but it, he clearly acknowledges that it, that book exists somewhere. Like, somebody could mm-hmm. write that book. It's just not this book. And so that's why I was like, that paragraph has got to go. Like, I don't understand. You cannot keep that in. <laughs> it's, it's so misleading. <laughs> anyway. It really is misleading. Like, yeah. It's wow. strange. It's strange. Um, in defense of the review, because I didn't pull out the quotes. I'm reading the whole thing, obviously. She does mention the longer lives. It's not like she ignores them, but that this gets a whole paragraph. I was like, no, no, no. It's a page. It's two pages. It's like you can't, you can't make it sound ent- emotionally enticing in that way when the book has no engagement with that emotional st- the stakes of that um, exactly yeah very strange um, final couple of thoughts from this one or quotes not thoughts uh, it's a perfect ending Nora didn't need a new life she just needed to realize that her own had potential and that she could keep reinventing herself until she achieved happiness really who doesn't need to hear that one of the reasons I love uh, to read is because it quiets my mind I was so engrossed in the midnight library that I stopped worrying about deadlines and small annoyances and bigger fears even days later when my mind darted to all the would have should have could haves I was able to redirect redirect call it the Hague effect why squander energy on imagining some other life it would be different yes but that doesn't mean better as Nora realizes it is not the lives we regret not living that are the real problem it is the regret itself so so me and this person do not read for the same reasons that's fine (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, but I just I it's just such an essential paragraph it's funny too because it, it feels so essential in this review to include this. Because it's like, oh, you and I don't even view books the same way. Not, not that reading doesn't comfort me or, or calm or quiet. It's just I want something so different with literary art. Like I don't, yeah, I, there's just such a difference there. And I think that that's fine and in a sense beautiful because it shows how a, you know, a book can have different effects on different people. Um, to call the ending of this book perfect 
it just is it must be so true it's just so skewed for a person who wants to read it for a different reason than i would read so right yeah really essential paragraph but i don't i mean all i can do is shrug and say like yes this i think the one thing that did make me laugh in the quote though i have to be maybe a little annoying about it we definitely don't need to name any proper noun effects after matt hag i'm not not calling anything the hag effect let's just say that right now (laughs) let's let's leave proper nounisms to perhaps more profound works maybe i don't know maybe that's Mm -hmm. just me might be being an ass the the Hague effect too is already like a cliched idea that has an, has been explored in movies and in literature yeah, before this book. Yeah, it's so, so yeah, it's so Hallmark movie. <laughs> it's just so yeah. Hallmark. It's like yeah, okay. Yeah. Do we really have to give it a name? I don't. Doesn't seem really worthy of that. You're right. Yeah. So it's appreciate yeah, life, I, Amanda. Yeah. Just appreciate it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Just I do. do. So. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, that's the Hague effect. So you got Hague, you didn't even know it. I'm turning into a verb. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Uh, final quote from this review. Uh, as Nora muses, it is quite a revelation to discover that the place you wanted to escape to is the exact place you escaped from, that, that the prison wasn't the place, but the perspective. It turns out I didn't need a midnight library to shift my own perspective. I just needed a single book. Again, to this, I can only shrug and say... I have gotten similarly simple revelations out of a five-minute blog, a little a little motivational, philosophical post of amusing, maybe even a short story. I just don't think this project is worthy of that. I, I, I 100% see how this would shift somebody's thinking or reaffirm their life or pick them up or whatever, all those things. But it's just like, it doesn't, it's not doing anything else, I don't think, at least not things that I look for or appreciate. So it's, I don't know, I, I, I finished that review very respectful and appreciative of like, yeah, I could see how could something life-affirming not, you know, lift some, some people up. But also... What else did it do? I, <laughs> um, literarily, what did it do? Uh, yeah. Anyway, so quibble with that. Yeah, I, 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 f- I find it difficult to believe that reading this has shifted her perspective, unless she's never read or seen any kind of life affirming movie before this, because the this novel is just a a summary of all the cliches about life affirmation that yeah. has already been explored. So like if yeah. you've, <laughs> this book would be, it would change your perspective if you've never seen a, uh, movie? a Hallmark movie or what's um, the Christmas an, one, you know, from forever ago, uh, a Christmas Carol, the Dickens one. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, there you go right there. I was, I was thinking of a more <laughs> recent one, the one where the guy commits suicide in the river and then he sees how oh, much yeah. he mattered. Um, a wonderful life. Yeah, this is the yeah. worst version of that. I mean, I guess it, this book also doesn't have the benefit of like you know memorable performances and music or whatever all the things film has. But yeah, right. I don't. It's in no way different. It adds nothing to that discourse or like exactly. That's the, that's the thing is like when literature literature in, in the fictional sense doesn't have to add to discourse because it is an art form that can you can enjoy for stylistic reasons. This book has none of that to offer. Or very, yep. you know, we really exactly. nitpick them up. We've there's the timestamp move there's the two-page sprint there's the polar bear scene like we you know there's the non-sex sex sex. we we, we've picked this at it we've picked at this (laughs) and are coming out with not much um yeah so that's the thing yeah that's the thing that kind of 
gets to me, I, I suppose, with a reflection like that. It, yeah, it's quite a sentence to say that this book would change your perspective. But again, you just yep. can't. It's hard to deny it either, though, because it's just not my, not how I reacted. But it's we know that books can do this. It is just weird hearing that from like presumably a pretty literary adult being like, right. did, didn't that happen in like middle school? Like books are just empathetic kind of by definition. Fiction is like an empathy machine. And it's just right. so weird not to. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. I guess you know, different people, um, different people having different responses. I don't know. I can only fall back to my own generalizations, cliches. Yeah. Uh, any <laughs> any thoughts on that review? Uh, I just disagree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and I, I have to write into the post, you know, a strong email and tell them to delete the paragraph about the the other interesting line. <laughs> uh, yeah it's just so funny to see that it's like how i mean i don't want to call it pulling out of context per se but it is funny to see when it's like well that's two pages what do you have to say about the other 280 like pages of lives she lived anyway all right yeah. and she does include them again don't want to misrepresent because she does describe the other ones too anyway All right, let's move to the Lightly Literary Hall of Fame, the final section of all of our book club episodes. This is where we induct one thing from the book to celebrate. Um, As you could probably tell, might be more challenging. Let's try and keep it sincere, though. I do think we want to keep this to a non-snarky... It can be small, though. It can be micro. You could induct that sycamore tree if you wanted, if you like, whatever. But let's try and induct something sincere. I know you put down a negative one. If you want to talk about it, you could. But let's try and keep the Hall of Fame pure in, in a positive celebratory way. I included, yeah, a negative one, which would be like Hall of Shame, I suppose. Um, But um, I did also include a positive one. I was, I will say, pretty hard pressed. Um, But for the positive one, I said it's uh, most allusions to philosophers and music. Yeah. Did you enjoy a lot of those? Think they worked? I mean, the Thoreau, talk about just staring outside at simple things and appreciating them. The, what was that movement? Not naturalists. What's the, forget all my terms. Transcendentalism. Transcendentalism. Like that's a, that's not a bad philosophy to include in this book. I think a lot of it was maybe a little, again, it's a little too upfront, probably giving her job, giving her the literal job of just like philosopher to, to us, to the reader is, you know, it's a bit much, but it, it's, I think it's a good philosophy kind of camp to pull from. Yeah. And, and it marries well with <clears throat> the author's philosophy that he spells out for us throughout the chapters. Um, mm-hmm. The, I liked the music <clears throat> allusions, like, like the comparison to, of uh, the labyrinths to um, the Cure, who's one of my favorites, and then the Carpenters, who's like nothing like the Cure. I thought that was like really and, well done. And Tone, Tame Impala, which is a psychedelic rock band, and then yeah, Frank Ocean, which who's kind of like a really I don't know, like how do you describe Frank Ocean? He's it's like R and B, but it's I don't know, yeah. it's a, it's a specific type for sure. I, I haven't. I hadn't planned ahead to think through the adjectives to pull, but it's it's a certain, <laughs> it's a very intimate, I guess all R&B is kind of intimate. It's intimate, but not really sexualized R&B. It's interesting. Hmm. Um, confessional, maybe? And, uh, maybe and I think the there's a reference to Billie Eilish as well. There is. Yeah. Or she says oh, like, I'm as famous yeah. as Billie Eilish, or I forget what it is. Yeah. No, definitely. Okay. So inducting the, f- the philosophy references. Yeah. Philosophy and music, which yeah. are both kind of similar in a lot of ways <laughs> yeah definitely i'm going to induct for my option my selection the chapter where she flies through all the lives because 
And now granted, this is, of course, I'm going to take back what I said. This is backhanded. The, the induction of that chapter is sincere. Unfortunately, the reasons undergirding it maybe aren't all complimentary. It's just that we finally see that there are strange things out there. It's just this book does not show them to us. So it's so annoyingly mm-hmm. tantalizing. <laughs> it, it shows us what an unpredictable and odd uh, and distressing and boring and uplifting. And uh, the word I thought of then was labyrinthian, which, you know, hey, I'll, t- I'll take that pun. Uh, labyrinthian <laughs> book this could have been, but it wasn't. I still think that we should induct this chapter for its fun digressiveness and just for the the tantalizing, you know, uh, appearance of, of such a work. Uh, let me just read some of them, some of the inclusions. I, I love this one, this one sentence one. This is a great transition. In one life, she only ate toast. What does that mean? Can we do can we do five pages on that, please? Like, how fun and weird would that be? Like, what the hell does that mean? Uh, why? Uh, in another life, she was a sea of emotion. She felt everything deeply and directly. In one life, she had a teenage son called Henry, who never she never met properly because he kept slamming doors in her face. Uh, in one life, mm-hmm. she was the picture editor at National Geographic. In one life, she ran the showbiz column in a tabloid newspaper and did stories about Rylan Bailey's relationship, so he comes back. In one life, she'd never drunk alcohol. In one life, she had no social media accounts. In one life, she was married to a minor royal and hated every minute. In one life, she was traveling around South America and caught up, got caught up in an earthquake in Chile. And, you know, there's the vegan powerlifter one. In one life, she met Hugo again, driving off the um, Corsican... Is it Corsican? Coast? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then it just goes on and on. There's a couple that are longer digressing digressions, and you know she talks to Hugo a bit. Uh, there's there is signs. There are signs there that a different book would take this project in a much different direction, but mm-hmm. instead we're left with the kind that has a tidy book of regrets. It just needs to checklist those things off to make sure she's comfortable and get her to the realizations that she always needed to to affirm her life and uplift her. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm inducting it anyway because I thought that was a great, such a such a tempting chapter, and it. I don't know. It also again filled me with maybe some like negative feelings just because I imagined what could have been, so to speak. But you know, I'm not going to mm-hmm. live with regrets, Amanda. Why why live the life where you think about what could have been? <laughs> I was taught it was the Hague effect. I've been Hague affected. Oh yep. Mm-hmm. You've been Hagged. I've been Hagged <laughs> in the end. Any final thoughts on the Midnight Library? Uh, nope, I'm good. Excellent. Well, that concludes our discussions. As always, we tend to go on longer when the book is more complicated, <laughs> when our response is not uh, <laughs> totally enthusiastic. This one's gone on a bit long, so thanks for listening. If you made it all the way to the end, we always appreciate it. Again, find us on Instagram and Facebook. We are at the Lightly Literary Podcast on those platforms, so check there for updates and you know, see what we're reading, see what we've got coming up. Uh, what is the next book? Do you have the p- picks put up? I do. So the next three books. Next yeah. is uh, Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zauner, which is a memoir. Um, ne- and then after that is Dubliners by James Joyce, which is a collection of short stories and a classic. Yes. Um, and then after that is The Human Stain by Philip Roth. And that's another a novel. big literary name. Dubliners mm-hmm. and Human Stain in a row is interesting. That's a strong, that's like a big, we're, we're pulling out the college tomes for that one. <laughs> I've never read Philip Roth before, so that's why I wanted he's, to include something by he's him. He's gotten into some, well, I think he passed recently in years, but he, he had a pretty controversial 
existence or you know it was kind of misogynistic but it was a big literary name it's like really acclaimed anyway it's those are both heavy literary picks for sure stylistically mm-hmm. i have to imagine we're going to be a far cry from this that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely uh, so yeah we'll see if we you know we might like it or dislike it who knows but yeah that's those are interesting combos okay so we hope you join us for those those are our next upcoming books so keep your eyes on the feed for those things pick them up and start reading if you want to join us uh, thanks again for listening all the way through and until next time We'll see you between the pages.